0: Safer Chemicals Podcast. Sound science on harmful chemicals. So welcome to the Safer Chemicals Podcast. Today, Tim and Maria join us in the studio. Tim is the chair of our Committee for Risk Assessment, and Maria chairs the Socioeconomic Analysis Committee. So glad you could both make it. Thanks a lot for joining us. Pleasure to be here.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: For our listeners, the two committees prepare scientific opinions that are then used by the European Commission and EU Member States when deciding how chemical risks need to be controlled. Uh, The committees are made up of scientists from EU Member States and have observers from EU organisations that represent many different sectors and interests. So let's start with the Risk Assessment Committee. Now, Tim, you are fresh out of the June meeting, although looking at the agenda, fresh might not be the right word after days of what must have been pretty intense discussions on some big topics. I hope you still have some energy left for our talk. No problem. Let's get right to it then. So the committee adopted two interesting opinions on harmonized classification and labeling. Uh, Now, for our listeners, harmonized classification labeling is when chemicals are given a consistent and mandatory hazard classification and labeling requirement in the EU. So this is particularly important for chemicals that can harm us or the environment. But yeah, back to glyphosate. So as many of you probably know, it's a common herbicide used in agriculture and horticulture to combat weeds. Uh, You might even find it in some of your gardening products that you have under your sink. The second is silver and in this case it is used as an antimicrobial in biocidal products uh, like disinfectants and preservatives. We'll also be talking about restricting the use of lead in ammunition for hunting, outdoor sports shooting and in fishing later in the episode. But let's go ahead with glyphosate. So it's had a lot of public attention recently. Um, It's been approved for use in plant protection products uh, in the EU until the 15th of December this year. Um, there's also an application from industry to renew the approval, uh, which four EU countries have assessed. Now, I understand that ECHA and the European Food Safety Authority, so EFSA, are sharing the workload in evaluating the member state's assessment. Um, Tim, could you first explain the role of ECHA and the Risk Assessment Committee in this approval process? I'll try and
2: do it as simply as possible. When, when a pesticide comes up for renewal, it goes through the EFSA process for risk assessment. And as part of that process, ECHA relooks at the classification and labeling to provide an opinion which can be fitted into EFSA's work. So the two work together. We only look at the hazards of glyphosate as an active substance. We don't look at the risks. That's ECA, that's EFSA's task, sorry. And they have to look at the risks of the use of glyphosate in formulated pesticidal products. So the two roles are quite distinct. They're complementary.
0: All right. Um, And what does the committee's opinion kind of focus on exactly?
2: Well, our focus is on the intrinsic properties of the active substance glyphosate. So we would look at everything from the physical hazards like explosivity, if there's any suggestion of that, Um, We would also look at acute toxicity, we would also look at the aquatic environment, and then of course carcinogenicity, mutagenicity, and toxicity to reproduction are the the big three. But there's other things like skin sensitization, respiratory sensitization, they all have to be looked at and examined
0: in the, the review for the renewal.
2: Right. Okay. So, quite a wide range
0: of classifications that you look at focusing on the most harmful ones. It's
2: about 15 or more hazard classes, in fact.
0: Right. Okay. Um, well, let's then move on to the opinion itself. So, what did the committee conclude on the hazards of glyphosate?
2: Well, the committee concluded basically no change to the whole classification. So, there are, there are two um, acute classifications, or sorry, one acute classification. And then there's an aquatic classification for chronic aquatic toxicity. But those are the only classifications across the board. So, our opinion, uh, the conclusion is the same as previously in 2017. I have to say, though, that this is not just a rubber stamping exercise. You know, we've done this before, so we just conclude the same again. Um, you have a different dossier submitter this time. The last time the dossier was submitted by Germany. And we evaluated that dossier this time five years later it's a new dossier submitted by sweden france the netherlands and hungary Um, and they have done it from the ground up this is not just a copy paste exercise and our evaluation has taken that new dossier thoroughly and gone through it piece by piece so this is this is a re-evaluation but
0: it's a fresh evaluation from first principles Right. Okay. So there's a lot of new scientific evidence that I guess you've looked at as part of, uh, part of the review. What kind of data was looked at?
2: We were presented with three main sources of evidence. Uh, the first one, these are the guideline studies. And by guideline, I mean studies carried out to an international standard and usually under good laboratory practice or GLP. And these are the studies carried out by the applicants, and they're part of they're the mandatory part of a pesticide dossier, they have to be there. The second main area of evidence we looked at is the epidemiology studies. And these are studies which look at potential effects of glyphosate in humans specifically. And the third source then is the large amount of papers in the scientific literature, particularly those that have been published since Rack's previous opinion in 2017. And bearing in mind the literature search for that would have been about a year older. So these are the three main sources that we looked at. And for the first type, the guideline studies, particularly carcinogenicity, we evaluated in detail the tumor types in the seven rat studies and the five mice studies. And these studies were all regarded as valid. In doing so, we looked at the the strength of the statistical evidence. But well, we also looked at the biological relevance of the findings in those studies to come to a conclusion. With the second source of information, the epidemiology studies, we particularly looked at the latest findings from the ongoing cohort study. That's called the Agricultural Health Study. It's being carried out in the United States, and it's produced about 17 years of data so far. But we also looked at the available case control studies, reviews, reanalyses and meta-analyses. The case control studies are usually more difficult to interpret. And with the agricultural health study, it's not showing a risk at present for cancer from glyphosate. RAC agreed therefore on balance that the findings in the many uh, rat and mice animal studies as well as the epidemiology. and relevant studies from the literature didn't provide sufficient evidence for classification for carcinogenicity.
0: Of course it's natural that a lot of these uh, studies are done by industry because they have to do that to comply with different pieces of regulation. So it makes sense that there's a lot of it out there from industry. What about then studies that are maybe not from industry uh, that show different results or different outcomes?
2: It, It depends on how relevant they are to the classification of the product. I mean, if they're studies which are basically about the risks, then they're more relevant to the EFSA process and not to the ECHA process. That's quite clear. And sometimes they're a bit borderline, you know, they could have a bearing on both. So they have to be selected very carefully as to which process they're part of the process they're relevant for.
0: Okay, I mean, uh, mentioning one by name, so the WHO's International Agency for Research on Cancer, IARC, uh, you know, famously concluded in 2015, and I quote here that glyphosate is probably carcinogenic to humans. Um, can you explain a little bit why they came to a, such a different outcome? Mm.
2: I mean, they're an international agency working under the UN system, um, and they have a, a very high reputation in uh, cancer research, very well known worldwide. I think the answer is quite simple. It's just that the methodology that IARC uses and that we use in classification labeling is different. and IARC uses, as far as I'm aware, only studies which are in the public domain, so proprietary studies would not be considered as far as I understand it, whereas the database we look at is considerably larger and contains all of those industry studies, which five years ago would have been probably confidential, but I don't think they're confidential any longer. So it's just the difference in the databases and the different uh, way of selecting which studies are reviewed.
0: So. If you were to say it as concretely as possible, then, if I ask you, is glyphosate carcinogenic or not, what would you say? Well, under the
2: criteria of classification labeling, which are very clear and concise, glyphosate is not carcinogenic. In European terms, we do not consider it as a carcinogen.
0: Well, uh, what about the next steps, then? What's happening?
2: We've agreed our opinion and adopted it. Um, We we clearly have some cleaning up to do uh, to make sure it's in good shape before publication. Normally, we would publish our opinions within 10 to 12 weeks of the meeting. Um, I I wouldn't like to be tied down to exactly 10 or 12 weeks with this one, but we will get it out as quickly as possible. Um, It will be sent to the Commission and to EFSA and published on our website. So then everybody will have... um, Let's say the full transcript of our deliberations on all the hazard classes of glyphosate to consider.
0: So, still a way to go uh, before this one reaches the finish line. Uh, indeed, yes, indeed. Uh, all right, let's then move on to silver. So, um, can you walk us through the opinion? I understood it's been a long time coming on this one. Uh,
2: we've we've had it through five working group and five plenary meetings. So, we're we're heading to a year and a half at this stage. Um, Silver is a very big dossier. It's uh, it's a precious metal. Mm. It's used in jewellery, so it's very familiar to everybody. But it has a huge biocidal use uh, in all sorts of products to, as an antibacterial. I mean, it's used in ceramics. It's used in clothing. It's used in all sorts of places. So because of that, it becomes rather complicated to assess it because it comes in different forms. It's a metal, so... It's there as as an elemental metal, as um, you know, an ingot, if you like, in pure form. And by the way, jewellery is never in pure form; it's always an alloy. We're we're trying to assess the pure metal, mm-hmm. and it begins to get interesting and complex because most of the animal studies which are in the dossier have been done on soluble silver salts, mm-hmm. so things like uh, silver acetate, for example, silver nitrate. And those, of course, are, sil- are soluble compounds. They're readily available for, uh, to, to be absorbed in the body. We've also got a lot of data on nano forms of silver, which is in itself uh, an area of assessment. A lot of studies on nano, clearly a lot of interest in, in uh, laboratories assessing nano silver. Well, we're asked, to, we're asked to assess either powdered or massive forms of silver. So this is the metal itself. So then the question arises as to how we use the data from nano, which is extensive, how we use the data from the soluble silver salts, which is even more extensive, for classifying the metal, which is very difficult to test and has hardly been tested in metallic form. Right. So we have to develop a sort of um, concept of reading across the data we do have to the data we don't have. And that's why it gets so complicated. And we have to go through that three-phase assessment for every single one of the hazard classes from from physical properties all the way up to the CMR properties. That's why it just took a long time. Each of the CMR carcinogenicity mutagenicity and toxicity to reproduction hazard classes is the size of a normal CLH dossier okay. so you, you can imagine the the effort that goes into this
0: why is it then that there's not so much data available why do you have to do the read across
2: well the, the metallic form is just very hard to test that, right. that's the problem and um, we're, we're looking at nanoforms from one nanometer up to 100 nanometers and then into powder into micron forms above 100 nanometers into the micron range and then about one millimeter you get to massive, I think they call it. Right. So, I mean, one, one millimeter, you know, sand grain sized particles of silver, you can't really test them in any sensible way. Right. The powders, you know, there's a gradient there of what can be done. But there's just very little data on powder forms of silver.
0: So, what's the opinion then? What's 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 well, been the,
2: the, the, the CMR hazard classes? It's um, no classification for carcinogenicity and mutagenicity. And reproduction, we had more doubts about, we had more concerns. We gave it uh, Repro 2 for fertility. So, this is based on animal studies. Mm-hmm. We had concerns about fertility, and we had concerns that what we were seeing in the nano grades would run over into the micron grades as it gets as they get a bit bigger. Mm-hmm. At least the evidence we had on availability was suggesting that there wasn't too much difference between the lower micron grades of powder and the nano grades for which we had data. So okay. I, I think that's the best description I can give of it. Okay. So REPRO2 is the main classification proposed, and that's for fertility.
0: And so, just to be clear, um, you mentioned this already. So, your jewellery is safe, but you did say that there's a wide use of silver. So, you know, if I have silver in my sports clothing, some some nano form of silver, do I have to worry? Um, you know, these kinds of questions might come up from this.
2: We're assessing the intrinsic properties of this of the silver metal, so that um, the biocidal products committee at a later date can look at the risks of silver and that's where the clothing and all the rest of it comes into it so at, at the moment that process also has a long way to go time to get
0: rid of all my jewelry and my sports clothing I think you'll be fine with your jewellery. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well that covers the two harmonised classification and labelling proposals, yeah. unless you want to add something on those? No,
2: I think that's as much as I wanted to say. It's, I think this is complicated enough as it is without
0: adding more to it. <laughs> All right, good. Let's then move on to another topic that is also very much debated. Um, and this is the restriction on the use of lead in ammunition, um, specifically for hunting, outdoor sports shooting, and in fishing. Now here, the Risk Assessment Committee adopted its opinion, while the socio Economic Analysis Committee agreed on its draft opinion. Um, before we get to you, Maria, uh, let's continue with Tim um, on the adopted opinion. Can you tell us what was concluded? Well, we, we concluded
2: that there is a risk to address in all three areas of uh, hunting, outdoor shooting, and fishing from the use of lead. And that, uh, that risk is at a European-wide level and needs to be addressed. Simple as that.
0: Okay, can you tell us a bit more about the concerns? So what, what, what's the issue?
2: Well, I mean, lead is a toxic substance. Um, it's toxic to reproduction. Normally, toxic to reproduction is considered a, as a, a threshold effect. But lead has a neurotoxic effect and is, children are particularly susceptible. So it's usually considered to be non-threshold. And in in the European Union, our procedure for dealing with non-threshold substances like that, of this level of concern, is to minimize their exposure. And minimizing the exposure really means that there have to be concrete risk management measures in place, no matter what the use is. And as you can imagine, with outdoor shooting, it is not possible to apply risk management measures when... Lead is being shot into the open environment on shooting ranges that's a little bit different because it is possible to apply risk management measures so there's a set of um, risk management measures attached to a derogation with fishing it's um I think in in the risks in a sense are similar to shooting in that um, lead lead um, sinkers and small led um, split shot on fishing lines readily gets into the open environment. We know it's um, eaten by um, wading birds and other birds kept in their crop as a sort of um, a meal to grind their food with and slowly poisons them. And I think one of the biggest concerns, uh, uh, clearly human health is a concern in this, but Concern for wildlife is one of the dri- one of the big drivers of this restriction as well, and that's that we we think that up to a million birds a year die of lead poisoning in the European Union. And this was also the basis of the um, restriction on uh, shooting in wetlands, which was uh, adopted by the Com- or went to a decision by the Commission not so long ago. So this is also part of the reason for um, wanting to restrict the use of uh, Lead for um, in in fishing and in outdoor shooting as well. Mm-hmm. It's just it's a wide distributive use. Right. That's
0: what it comes down to. What about then in terms of the the reductions that could result from this restriction? What are we talking about in terms of numbers of lead emissions into the environment, for example?
2: Hard to tell. Um, I mean, there is already a large stock of lead in the environment, which is not going to go away. I think the purpose of this restriction is to, as quickly as possible, not put any more into the environment. Um, maybe Maria can address the issues, issues of the tonnage and uh, the, the the reduction in tonnage that's expected, but it's substantial
0: amounts of lead that go into the environment every year. We'll get, that, get to that with Maria then in a, in a minute. Um, what did the committee, in addition to all this, consider when making its opinion? So what kind of studies did you look at? Um, we, we looked very
2: much at, well, there's a, there's a consultation ahead of, there's actually a call for evidence while ECHA is um, devising the restriction proposal. This came from ECHA, it didn't come from a member state. so There's a call for evidence at that point, and a huge amount of information comes in. Then there's a consultation uh, ahead of, uh, or during opinion development in both RAC and SEAC and a lot more information comes in in that consultation. So basically that all has to be collated, assessed, replied to, and the valuable bits then go into the opinion for consideration. And Part of the consultation did cause uh, a, a redrafting of part of the dossier submitter's proposal in relation to the risk management measures at um, shooting grounds, which I mentioned, right. so it did have an the, the, the consultation did have an impact on the development of the opinions.
0: All right. Um, now, what about there was this one study um, that was done by the European Food Safety Authority, uh, particularly on the consumption of game meat and its impact on on human health. Yeah. Was that something that was considered, and how? It, it
2: was indeed. I mean, it's it's um, it's at the heart of the assessment of risks to. Um, families of shooters or, or families of um, people who hunt game and who might be using that meat for food on a regular basis. Um, that that data was provided by EFSA, so we had full access to it from the very beginning and discussed it at quite some length. Um, some of the con- contributions through other stakeholders. Um, Particularly the NGOs came up with um, new assessments of that type of information as well. So we, we looked at that and took that into account as well. The the data is quite variable, but that's what you would expect. It's um, If it's a market survey, it's sort of picking products off shelves and having them analyzed without necessarily knowing what the conditions of shooting were. So there's there is some uncertainties in it, but we felt that it was quite compelling information, to be honest. Right. There's another there's another aspect I'd like to mention, and it's one where we we consider that there is a risk to human health, but we couldn't really assess it in any quantitative way. And that's to do mainly with um, fishing and partly some forms of hunting, but I think mainly fishing, and that's where um, individuals or um, a shop owner, let's say, would on an ad hoc basis cast their own fishing weights. So putting a pot on a stove, right. melting scrap lead, um, and then pouring it into molds, with proper risk
0: management measures in place,
2: um, <laughs> with probably no risk management measures in place, at least that's the concern. Mm-hmm. Um, this happening on a, on a um, consumer basis is rather worrying. We didn't really get sufficient information to be able to evaluate it properly, but it remains there as a concern in the backs of our minds as, as something that might need addressing in the future.
0: Right, so in doing that, they would be exposed to kind of lead fumes, dust, again, particularly of concern for any children in a family that exactly. would be doing yeah. that. Um and, and do you have some kind of feeling of how common this might be? That's the problem. We don't.
2: None at no. all. No, we, 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 we identified it as a risk, but we were really had great difficulty in, in assessing the context. Right. So we think it happens, mainly because there is a wide range of products for casting lead on the market. Simple as that.
0: Okay. Anyway, as you mentioned, the main driver uh, for this proposal is the impact on the environment—the uh, the birds exactly. dying yeah. and also endangered species—and and the kind of the, the amount of lead that gets put into the environment uh, because of its use. Um, so the human health side is important, but not the main driver it's, in this it's case. It's
2: clearly in there as a, as a, a central concern. But this um, the dossier submitter examined a whole range of different environmental compartments whole range of different types of potential exposures to surface water to groundwater to a whole range of situations and we on a qualitative basis we graded those potential risks um, across a whole range of categories so it, it's really a very broad look at the use of lead in hunting shooting and fishing and every type of impact or every type of uh, risk that
0: you might uh, encounter from it um, we're then going to move on to you, Maria, and talk more about the socio-economic aspects of the same restriction. So here the committee agreed on its draft opinion on the same restriction proposal as the RAC um, just did for the final opinion. Um, so what were the highlights of the SAC assessment?
1: Well, basically we support the proposed restriction and we consider that it is appropriate to address the risks that uh, Tim has told you all about, and to ensure a level of protection that is consistent, uh, both for people and for the environment in the EU. And I note that that includes that we think that it is proportionate as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's kind of the main conclusion. There were a few areas where um, there were some modifications that were proposed based on um, the assessment. So uh, the way it works is that uh, ECHA prepared a proposal. Look at it. We analyze it, and there were some areas where the committee thought that uh, things should be a little bit different. So I'll, I'll highlight a couple of them. Yep. First change that I would like to highlight is that we thought that uh, the transition period that was suggested for using lead gunshot in hunting, which uh, was five years by the in the in the original proposal, we think that that's not necessary. We think that a shorter one could actually work. So basically, the idea is that. Um, In the proposal, it was thought that there was limited capacities to produce steel gunshots so that more time would be needed. However, when the committee analysed the evidence, it found that there wasn't really well substantiated that issue. We think that about 18 months could be sufficient, so it's an initial proposal. It's not uh, completely certain that 18 months should be the actual uh, final one, Uh, but the uh, question is asked then for the consultation on the SEAC opinion to uh, provide information and uh, support conclusion on what uh, SEAC is actually going to recommend on this one.
0: Right, okay. Uh, coming from five years to 18 months sounds like a big reduction uh, there, so I guess there will be some interest in the consultation also. Uh, I guess the biggest impact here is for, for hunters obviously, so, so they will need to make a change faster.
1: Yeah, the producers of the alternatives, uh, we think that they can make it in that time. So basically the original concern was whether they would be able to have alternatives ready in in, in time. Uh, However, we think that alternatives are available in most sizes and gauges. And uh, actually, as well, hunting considerably contributes to the benefits of the proposal. So it's important to give only as much as is needed and no more than that. So that's the, the, the initial proposal. Let's see how the industry reacts and what evidence they present about it.
0: Right. Okay. One thing I want to touch upon here is the, the price. So uh, you mentioned steel. Of course, there's other alternatives there. But for a hunter, for example, making the transition from lead to shot to steel shot. Is there a big difference in price?
1: We think that at the moment, the prices are comparable. Of course, it's not just the cost of the actual material. It's the cost of, in some cases, adapting guns or buying new guns. Some of the old ones would need to be adapted. But in general, we've looked at all the potential impacts and uh, we've looked at something that we call affordability. So what the cost would be per hunter. And uh, we find that that is something that is quite affordable if you look at it from that point of view. So uh, th- 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 in terms of the increasing cost, that, w- that is not something that we think is uh, very Significant uh, per hand,
0: right? And of course, there is the idea of supply and demand. So once the demand goes up for one of these alternatives, the prices, one would assume, would, would also drop.
1: Yes, that is something that could very possibly happen. But of course, uh, as well, the other thing that we need to think about is that uh, prices of metals do change uh, over time. So it's a little bit difficult to say that because they are comparable today, it would be the same tomorrow. But right. you know, all these things have been have been considered.
0: Okay, so for sports shooting there was also a derogation, right?
1: Yeah, we actually have two different kinds of derogations that we're talking about here. So when we're talking about uh, what the proposal calls projectile other than gunshots, so we're talking bullets mostly, uh, then there is a derogation, they're proposed uh, that is conditional on having uh, appropriate risk management measures there and there's you know a description of what those those may be. Um, however, for lead gunshot it's a little bit different. So here we have got what we called uh, an optional derogation for the decision makers. So the proposal uh, is actually a ban. however, if the decision makers think that they would like to allow uh, this to continue to be used, mm-hmm. then uh, we propose certain conditions that would have to be met you know, in the shooting ranges in order to allow the use of lead gunshots. Right. So it's a little bit different. It's not actually supported uh, by the dossier submitted. This is not what they would prefer, but they understand that uh, the decision makers may want to bring something okay, like so this. So it's good in. to have that option there. Yeah, exactly. SEAC has uh, assessed this as well. We are not uh, saying whether we prefer one or the other, we're just simply assessing the potential impacts of, of having this in place. And uh, one proposal that SEAC has made is that if it was to be brought in this erogation we think that the shot sizes that could be allowed should be limited uh, to a more narrow range than in the original proposal. So basically the ones that are actually used in sports shooting. We know that in hunting some slightly larger ones are used, so we think that um, we should have it more limited so that uh, it's a little bit easier to enforce as well. So we're talking about between 1.9 and 2.6 millimeters.
0: Right, okay. So just for my own understanding, the idea here is that by reducing the size you reduce the amount of lead that could potentially leak.
1: No, it's not so much that, it's more that uh, for hunting, uh, there's also larger sizes that are used. But for sports shooting, the the, the sizes used are a little bit more narrow. Mm -hmm. So we don't see the point in allowing sizes that are not used. And it makes up actually if uh, someone has the larger sizes, it's known that they shouldn't be using it for uses that are allowed.
0: Right. Okay. Thank you. That's clear. Thank you for me, at least, to understand. All right. Um, what about the impact of this restriction on military use of lead ammunition? I know that's something that's also been talked about. Um, so was it so that military use is completely excluded from the proposal?
1: Uh, yes, basically, there are some uses and applications that are simply not associated with the identified risks, so they are kept outside of the scope of the proposal. Here we're talking about police, uh, law enforcement and military applications, so that is that is there. Uh, however, there have been some issues raised throughout the assessment about whether the um, the, the proposal in non-military uses could have some effects that would uh, have an impact on military uses. One of them is the security of the supply of ammunition, mm-hmm. uh, whether the ban would then mean that there's not enough ammunition that uh, will be available for military use, even if it's allowed.
0: Right, because people will be moving towards other types of...
1: Yes, exactly. So uh, would there be enough supply, would there be enough production for them to be able to 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 have what they need uh, for military use? Mm-hmm. So that was something that has been considered by the committee, it was assessed. And uh, the basic conclusion was that uh, SEAC doesn't consider that this would be an issue. We think that because um, the ammunition would still be allowed in sports shooting, then we think that there will be enough production to allow for uh, some security in the supply. So we don't think that this is a major issue at all, actually pretty minor, and we think this should be safe. But it's good that we have looked at this, I think. The other issue is uh, that has been raised by quite a few people is whether the implementation of the restriction would lead to having uh, fewer shooting ranges available for, uh, particularly for reservists, to train in. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite often, they are using uh, non-military uh, ranges to train, to practice, yeah. and if there's fewer nearby, then that may affect the, the training. And that is an issue that has been raised as a possibility and an uncertainty by SEAC. We don't have a very good idea of what the number of um, shooting ranges in the end would be.
0: Mm-hmm. And this is, I guess, something that you were looking for feedback in the consultation as well.
1: Absolutely. If something someone has got that information, uh, however, it's it's a little bit uncertainty, uh, uh, uncertain exactly what would actually happen. It's uh, thinking into the future and that, uh, there's been a lot of information provided already. It's just not very clear uh, exactly what the reality would be.
0: Let's then move on to the maybe less talked about, but also a part of this restriction, so the phishing. There as well, there was a derogation, correct?
1: Well, there, there are a couple of uh, derogations where SEAC, uh, well, in general, we've concluded that it would be proportionate to have the, the restriction as proposed. But there are a couple of potential derogations where uh, they haven't been supported in the initial proposal, but CEA considers that they could be justified on socioeconomic grounds. And these are for uh, lead sinkers and lures that are over 50 grams, and also something called lead split shots. So the idea there is that we don't really have the information to be able to conclude. For now, we're not supporting a derogation, but we're inviting people to provide information on the potential socioeconomic uh, impacts of that, particularly availability of alternatives. Uh, That uh, we're asking to be provided during the consultation and if there is enough evidence to support a derogation there, we may well do so.
0: Okay, good. Um, Maybe then moving to the actual impacts of the restrictions. So what what kind of benefits are you expecting from this?
1: Uh, Well, we're talking uh, about a reduction of uh, 633,000 tons of lead over 20 years. So we have looked at the proposal over 20 years and uh, we are comparing uh, the situation with a restriction in place against the situation that would be if we did not have the restriction. And that's that's the difference. It's preventing the um, emission into the environment of, of uh, that huge quantity of, of lead. Um, there are also other kinds of benefits uh, around uh, Bird impact on birds, uh, around impact on on humans from consuming the the game meat, and that ranges from chronic kidney disease to IQ loss. So you know, quite a wide ranging of uh, ranging of things. Some of these have been quantified and are included in the proposal. Mm-hmm. Some have been described only qualitatively, but it's really important that we don't lose um, track of those things that have only been described qualitatively. They can be just as important as the ones we can are able to put numbers on.
0: Going then on to the consultation on the opinion, so that will soon start and you covered a little bit about this already, but what kind of information in a nutshell then is the committee looking for?
1: Yeah, the consultation starts on the 29th of June, so the opinion will be published then and uh, the final version of the proposal will be there alongside it uh, for people to look at. So uh, there will be some specific questions uh, that will be asked Mm -hmm. Uh, And one of them I've mentioned, for instance, already, this uh, issue of the uh, different types of uh, fishing related lures and and split shots. So if there's information there, we we would like to receive it. And then, of course, I mentioned that uh, we had proposed a shorter transition period for lead gunshot. Um, I said, we've got a starting proposal of 18 months, but we would like to have some information to come to our final proposal. And that's something we would really appreciate information on. Uh, there is also a request for information on uh, some antique weapons and muzzle loaders oh, right. uh, that are used uh, in, in different types of activities. Uh, so some uh, th- there it's difficult to come to a conclusion. So we've asked for, for more information there. And yeah, there will be a few other questions on areas where they are a little bit more uncertain. So we will have that published alongside the uh, consultation. But it's important to emphasize as well that uh, we are looking for... Uh, those things specifically, but any kind of information can be submitted that is relevant to the socioeconomic assessment. Of course Mm -hmm. we cannot really assess um, stuff that's more in the remit of our sister committee, the Risk Assessment Committee, Mm -hmm. Uh, but if there is something in the opinion where people think that they have more information or information that contradicts uh, our assessment, we would be particularly interested in hearing it.
0: Okay good, that's clear. So it starts on the 29th of June um, and it runs for
1: 60 days. So, until the end of uh, August, I think that would be.
0: Right. And then what happens after the consultation?
1: Well, then we look at all the different comments and analyze them, and uh, that will take a while. We had uh, over 300 comments in the initial consultation, so we expect that we will have quite a lot now. Um, Normally, the uh, legislation expects that we would uh, basically then consider them very quickly and adopt the opinion in the next plenary. With this kind of proposal it's just not not doable. So we will be looking at adopting the final opinion amended to reflect any new information provided in the consultation in December, in our plenary in December
0: then thank you both for taking the time to join us um, and for the deeper look into the work of the committees. A lot of interesting topics um, and and a lot more coming up uh, in the future meetings. So I look forward to having you back with us after the next meetings, hopefully in September, where we expect to hear about the restriction of PAHs in clay targets from both of the committees in this case. If you want to know more about the committees or the topics discussed in this episode, visit eco.europa.eu. Um, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, um, also echo.europa.eu forward slash podcasts. And remember to give us feedback through our short questionnaire. There's a link to that in the episode description. Thank you and goodbye. Safer Chemicals Podcast. Sound science on harmful chemicals.